0: From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. At the time that this is being recorded, all 38 plays, as well as the sonnets and poems that comprise the Folger Library Shakespeare editions, have been available to the public for the past five years. This isn't an ad, and just to prove it, the third Norton edition of the works of Shakespeare is also about to be published. We're taking this opportunity to examine just what it means to edit the works of Shakespeare. Our guests are two people with the authority to discuss this. Since 1989, Paul Wurstein has been the co-editor of the Folger Editions along with Barbara Mowat. He's also a professor of English at King's University College in London, Ontario. Suzanne Gossett is co-textual editor of the Norton Shakespeare. She has also edited the Arden Shakespeare edition of Pericles and is a past president of the Shakespeare Association of America. We call this podcast The Dedicated Words Which Writers Use. Suzanne and Paul are interviewed by Rebecca Shear.
1: Paul, let's start with you. My first question may appear to be self-evident, but I, but I have to ask, if Shakespeare wrote his plays 400 years ago, why do we need new editions? What What changes from edition to edition?
2: Well, I think uh, Shakespeare editing has been a kind of a dual process of conservation and mediation, so that what editors have tried to do is preserve the texts. Uh, But at the same time, from the very beginning, they've been mediating between the readership and the text. Uh, From the beginning, texts get modernized for example the spelling gets modernized and so you have that you have that process of modernization you also have uh, in addition to the editing and the establishment of the text you have a commentary you have introductions and all of those things of course are addressed toward an audience and toward facilitating the audience's ability to continue to read the plays. and so it's it's this process it's really in a way trying to keep shakespeare current that's one of the objects that editors have. That uh, that makes it necessary to continue to edit the text.
1: And I understand, on a very basic level, that some editions just have more mistakes than others.
2: Well, you mean early? You're talking about the early printed texts. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yes, and uh, yes, some of the editions are uh, are, are faultier than others. Uh, and in fact, there's there's an ongoing debate, uh, and has been for hundreds of years, among editors about uh, the extent to which the editor needs to intervene or intrude in order to identify mistakes and correct them that is what is a mistake for one editor is not always a mistake for the other, and so you have you have differences in emendation policies uh, from addition to edition.
1: What does emendation mean
2: it's in very practical terms it's uh, changing the word in the early printed text that is the basis of one's addition to another word in the belief that the word that's being changed is corrupt or wrong and needs to be altered in order to replicate what the author wrote or sometimes editors don't try to hold themselves to such an exalted standard as capturing what Shakespeare wrote but in order to replicate what was acceptable in the language of the time when Shakespeare was writing.
1: Now Suzanne, let's turn to you. In the new third edition of the Norton Shakespeare, your introduction looks at the subject, how authentic is the text I am reading? And it also looks at how the play scripts became printed texts. Yes. So with that first issue, the on the authenticity of texts, how authentic is Is the text we're reading when we read the Norton Shakespeare?
3: Um, I don't know exactly who the audience for all podcasts are, but I'd like to remind everybody that we have either no manuscripts of Shakespeare's plays and poems in his hand. Consequently, we have these printed texts, which may or may not convey what Shakespeare had in mind at the moment that he was writing. We don't even actually know whether Shakespeare ever revised any of his own plays, but we certainly have for half the plays more than one single text of such well-known plays as Hamlet and Lear and Romeo. The question then becomes, what does it mean to be searching for an authentic text? Uh, There were earlier editors who had in mind, indeed, just as Paul suggested, the idea that they could put down on the page what they were sure Shakespeare meant. I think modern editors have much less either conviction or self-confidence, you can call it as you like, that we can get back to that magic intentionality and singularity of Shakespeare. So we in the Norton Shakespeare are following what is the most, a very modern, belief in what's called single text editing. We are sticking as close as we can to the text that we actually have with, at the same time, the recognition that texts need to be comprehensible. So if there is some meaning that can be made out of a line with knowledge of early modern English, and it may not be completely smooth, but it makes sense, we don't change it. Uh, You get an 18th century editor, you get somebody like the great poet Alexander Pope, and he had no difficulty whatsoever announcing what was Shakespeare's and what was not. He took some lines and put them in the footnotes because he thought they weren't worthy of Shakespeare. We're pretty far away from that. We are nevertheless trying to create a comprehensive text, and we will amend when it is necessary
1: So, Paul, this process Suzanne describes for the Norton Shakespeare, is it similar to what you do with the Folger editions?
2: Yeah, I was impressed as I was listening to Suzanne about how much in unison we were about this (laughs) and hoping that you weren't looking for a debate because uh, (laughs) uh, I didn't think you were going to get one. I I would uh, subscribe to precisely what Suzanne has been saying.
3: I could say to help uh, I didn't expect to have a debate with Paul, it seemed terribly <laughs> unlikely to me, but just so that you have a sense that not everybody at all points has had such an idea in mind, the Norton Shakespeare first and second edition were based on the Oxford text. That was the most important text done in a hundred years. On the other hand, there were some texts, uh, I'll take the one because I'm the ardent editor of Pericles, and it's a play that's dear to my heart. I'll take the extreme case from the Oxford text. Pericles is a damaged text. We only have one text of it. It's from, it's a quarto, not from the first folio. And there are lots of things that don't make a great deal of sense. The Oxford text was freely called a reconstruction. That's where you would have a debate. Should we be reconstructing? Interesting.
1: Well, something I want you both to talk a little bit about is how you handle or how you present differences in the various base texts you're working on. So if we take Hamlet for an example, Hamlet is notorious for having many different versions. So when you come to a passage of of Hamlet where multiple versions exist for the
3: same speech, what do you do? Suzanne? Well, that's something that I can speak from the point of view of the Norton. We will have In the Norton, first of all, the Norton is conceived as an electronic edition from which the print edition is, in a certain sense, a spin-off. And we are going to edit the base texts of all the texts that we have. And in the electronic edition, there will be fully edited texts of all the base texts, including of plays like Romeo and Juliet, which has considerable differences in its two quartos. In the print edition, we will normally, except for Hamlet and Lear, have only one text. For Hamlet, however, in the print edition, we are presenting an edition of Q1, that's the famous bad quarto, and what we call a conjoined text, which is based on Q2, the good quarto, with the folio-only passages inserted. In the electronic edition, there will be Q1, Q2, the folio, and that conjoined edition. Can you give us some examples of what it is you're talking about? Well, I'll give you an example from Hamlet. In one of the texts, when Hamlet is sent off to England, he meets a captain on the road and has a few lines with him asking who's troops these are, and he learns they're Fortinbras' troops. I think there are about 12 lines. Mm -hmm. In the other text, there is a very considerable scene in which Fortinbras goes off, Hamlet doesn't talk to him, but he does talk to the captain, and he talks to the captain at considerably more length. And then when he is left alone, he has a very long soliloquy, a famous soliloquy beginning, how all occasions do inform against me, And it has such famous lines, lines students always cite, like, what's the matter with me? Am I thinking too precisely on the event? We don't usually want to conflate those. We are putting both materials together for the conjoined edition because those are things that people expect to have and because there's a great deal of criticism that talks about Hamlet as if it was always this one thing with everything there but we don't do the kind of conflation that used to be meant by conflation and here I will if you don't mind switch to Othello in which the editor picks and chooses so that in one text of Othello in reporting what Desdemona's reaction to his life story was Othello says she gave me a world of size And in the other, he says, she gave me, for my pains, a world of kisses. And what you used to get was a single text of Othello in which the editor simply decided if he was a Victorian, he sort of thought she should probably only sigh. (laughs) If he was a modern, he probably thought maybe she was kissing Othello. (laughs) But you can't conflate those. And yet traditional conflations would pick and choose. So conflation...
1: This is a controversial topic. Paul, how do you feel about it?
2: Well, again, I think, uh, yeah, Suzanne and I are <laughs> very much on the same page. Uh, it, it used to be that critics and uh, editors uh, thought that they could reconstruct, uh, determine what the manuscript origins of these were and what the provenance of, that is, where those manuscripts had been. Uh, behind those printed texts. And it was out of that kind of a conviction of their knowledge of these origins that they were uh, able to put the texts together. I mean, if you think you know where each of those texts comes from, then you can make, uh, you can make a judgment about when you should go with one and, and when you could go with the other. Uh, for example, if you think that the folio text of Hamlet is a theatrical text, is a playhouse text, then from our knowledge of playhouse manuscripts, one could uh, make certain inferences about how the, that text came to differ from the 160405 text of Hamlet. And what's happened is that there's a good deal less confidence now and the ability to know where things came from. And if you don't know where things came from, you're much less likely to want to get in there and uh, start to, to make changes because you don't have the confidence of knowing uh, how these differences arose.
1: I want to talk more with you, Paul, for a moment about the decision-making process that you have to go through. For instance, Hamlet's mother in 1604 is Gertrude and then Gertrude in 1623. And in A Midsummer Night's Dream, we have the character we call Puck, um, called Robin Goodfellow in an earlier printing. So can you walk us through what you have to do to make decisions like those?
2: Well, uh, partly it it comes back to that. Let's take the Gertrude Gertrard example. And actually, there's yet a different variant of the name in the 1603 quarto. So you actually have three choices uh, that you could make. what happens in, in that case, as far as uh, most editing goes, is that you get the intersection of the two processes that I was talking about at the beginning of preservation and mediation. And uh, Gertrude, which is the 1623 version of the name, is the name that is familiar to people nowadays as a name. And so in the process of modernization, we end up going with Gertrude. The interesting thing is that it's a name, the name, whether you spell it one way or another, is still going to refer to the same character. And so, in a way, it's possible, if you're an editor who has many decisions to make, to say, well, this one doesn't make that much difference. Uh, When you go to Puck in Robin Goodfellow, it's thought, or we thought... Uh, and I say we thought because I'm not totally convinced of this either, uh, is that the name Puck or Pook is a generic name for a certain kind of imagined spirit, whereas the name Robin Goodfellow is a, a much more precise name for a particular individual of that genus. And so we went with Robin Goodfellow, uh, but other editors have made the decision other ways, and we could hardly say that they were wrong to do that in that the two different names for the same character appear in the 1600 first quarto of Midsummer Night's Dream, which is our authoritative text. And so in a way, they, in terms of this question of authenticity that we're dealing with, each has the same claim to authenticity.
1: Paul, the Folger Magazine ran an article a little while back where your partner on the Folger Editions, Barbara Mowat, said that in many ways the old definitive text was very largely nothing more than an edition produced by Nicholas Rowe. Or is it Rowe? Nicholas, Rowe. Nicholas Rowe. First, who was Nicholas Rowe? And when did he produce that that edition?
2: Well, Nicholas Rowe is justifiably famous because he's the first editor of Shakespeare whose name we know. He published three editions, two in 1709 and one in 1714. And his editing was and is extraordinarily influential. He was a playwright in his own time, and that really was what his qualification was to be selected by the publisher, Tonson, to do this uh, edition of Shakespeare. And he introduced certain features of the text that are remarkably persistent. So, for example, he's the the one who first divided up all the plays into acts and scenes. Of course, a great many of Shakespeare's texts were not divided into acts and were not divided into scenes, especially in the, the plays that we think he wrote in the early to middle part of his career. So you get some very unequal divisions. For example, if you're reading Love's Labor's Lost and you've read the first four acts, you may think you're 80% of the way through the play, but actually you're just getting started, <laughs> given the length of the fifth act. Uh, so he, he did that, he uh, he also introduced uh, dramatis personae lists, or lists of the characters at the beginnings of the plays, something that not all the plays had, only a few of them had. He put in scene locations. He took it upon himself to say where each of the scenes was taking place. Now this is a feature that we have given up. He pretty much followed the fourth folio of 1685 for his text, but he wasn't in any way you know, completely... Uh, devoted to that text. He, he was the first one who did any conflation. We were talking about conflation. And he brought in that speech that Suzanne was talking about just a few minutes ago, the How All Occasions Do Inform Against Me speech. This is in Act 4, Scene 4 of Hamlet. It's not in the folio, the fourth folio, or even in the first folio that Roe was following. But he knew of quarto texts, not the 1604 5 text, but he had a derivative uh, text of that, the 1676 quarto text, and from that he brought in that famous speech, "How all occasions do inform against me," that Hamlet, where Hamlet accuses himself of inactivity in comparison to Fortinbras. Uh, so he does deserve uh, a lot of of credit and I suppose blame for, you know, where we are in in Shakespeare editing today.
1: Suzanne, how did that edition, this Nicholas Rowe edition become, you know,
3: Shakespeare instead of Nicholas Rowe's version of Shakespeare? It's really actually a story of publishing. Paul mentioned Tonson, Jacob Tonson. Now, Mr. Tonson, this is right at the beginning of the time of what we call copyright, though it didn't work the same way. But the, the first thing that we call copyright is in the time of Queen Anne, right about the time that Rowe produces this edition. Thompson had control of this edition, and every time the copyright, I'm going to call it that, was about to expire, he would hire a new person to do a new edition. But you see, they all worked from rote And and that went on for about 100 years. Paul, yeah. the, the Folger has
1: the only copy of the quarto <laughs> for Titus Andronicus in the entire world. Uh, some other yes. quartos just barely survived in two or three copies. How do you think those plays would be different today if all the quartos had been lost?
2: Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> they would be. I don't think that we would be talking, or that we would have been talking for hundreds of years, for example, uh, about Hamlet's uh, uh, delay if we had lost the quarrel. Because we, we we would have the the first speech at the end of Act Two, scene two, "Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, that he delivers after he's seen the actors perform. And he's disgusted with himself that they show such a level of passion and commitment and he doesn't show any of that he hasn't he hasn't killed claudius yet okay so we do have that one speech in both the folio and the quarto but the second speech that one that i referred to before how all occasions do inform against me is the second time in the play that hamlet rebukes himself for delay that's only in the quarto and so, if we didn't have that speech, we wouldn't have Hamlet twice rebuking himself for delay, uh, and and perhaps we wouldn't even be talking about Hamlet delaying. Uh, we wouldn't have uh, if we didn't have the Quarto of King Lear. We wouldn't have the magnificent scene in Act Four, where uh, Kent and a gentleman talk about Cordelia and how she is so affected by the suffering of her father it's a scene which uh, almost sanctifies Cordelia and it's really important to the understanding of her. Uh, so even Titus Andronicus makes a difference you know when uh, we, that torto didn't turn up till the beginning of the 20th century and so all editions of Titus Andronicus were based on the second, what we now call the second quarto of Titus Andronicus. It turns out, once we found the first quarto, it turns out we discovered that the second quarto had been printed, reprinted in part from a defective copy of the first quarto, from which certain, uh, a few lines were missing. Uh, from the bottom of a leaf, and so you had a, a few lines on one side of the, you know, one side of the leaf gone, and a few lines on the other side of the leaf gone. The printer of the second quarto replaced those lines with those of his or somebody in his shop's own devising, and so we were reading that as Shakespeare for hundreds of years. And then the first quarto turned up, and we went, "Wow!" Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to editing. The plays.
1: Is the point of editing to make the plays more comprehensible or more enjoyable? Or should I not even use the word or? Is it more of an and thing? Um, First, Paul and then Suzanne, I'm curious how you would respond. So, Paul, more comprehensible or more
2: enjoyable? Well, we certainly want people to understand Shakespeare. We also want Shakespeare to be enjoyable. But I, I think that we don't want to compromise the editor's function of preservation in the interest of perhaps making Shakespeare more enjoyable. Uh, And so I think that's kind of the break, uh, B-R-A-K-E, that editors put on themselves.
1: And Suzanne, what's your take?
3: Well, I think I'd be a little bit straightforward about this. I think in my mind that there's no question that the question of comprehension comes first. And the reason I say that is that there exist, you know, these, I can't call them editions, these books that basically modernize the language of Shakespeare as uh, it's everything I most disapprove of, uh, as opposed to say something like the small Folger editions, which are very widely used in high schools. But we know that Shakespeare is so basic to Anglo-American culture, but actually to Western culture that we can't pretend that every student comes to Shakespeare because he either wants to or expects to enjoy it. So I think an editor's job is to make it comprehensible. I think, frankly, many students discover they really enjoy Shakespeare when they f- first see it on the stage. The classrooms are complicated. There are people, people probably like Paul and me, um, I mean, I'm talking for Paul, who fall in love with this language and these plays and these poems at a very early age and get enormous enjoyment but you do have people who are there because they know how important shakespeare is to our literature and our culture and they want to read it and it's not the editor's primary problem to make them enjoy it is, is that too strong paul
2: <laughs> oh no not at all i wouldn't i wouldn't uh, disagree at all
1: paul when when the folger decides to make a new edition what is it that brings on that choice? Is it changes in taste? Is it advances in scholarship?
2: Uh, I think it's, it's both. It, it, scholarship does advance, or at least scholarship it certainly changes. I mean, we have a very different understanding of editing Shakespeare now than we did in the 1950s. And it was in the 1950s that the first Folger edition was done by uh, the then director of the library, Louis B. Wright, and his executive uh, assistant uh, Virginia Lamar and by the time we got to the time that Barbara and I started to work on it in the very late 80s there had been a there was beginning to be at least a very marked change in our understanding of editorial function Um, I think that counts for the Folger the sense of the advance in scholarship so, for example, in the first Folger, we have we have pictures in the Folger editions, as you know. If you look at the pictures in the earlier editions, you'll see that a lot of them are merely decorative, whereas the pictures that are in the present Folger edition are always there in order to uh, instruct and uh, therefore to complement, with an e, to complement the commentary that goes along with the uh, with the play.
1: I'm hoping both of you can weigh in on this last question. Do you think there can ever be a definitive text of Shakespeare? And if not, why not? <laughs> Who wants to go first?
3: You f- <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to say, Paul, you first.
2: <laughs> All right. I mean that, that word definitive is a <laughs> is a word that that did exist in in Shakespeare textual criticism about I would say fifty or so years ago. There was mm-hmm. a, a marvelous editor and textual critic. He was regarded as the dean of Shakespeare editing in North America, a man named Fredson Bowers. He had actually worked in intelligence in the Second World War and had had been one of those who uh, managed to break the Japanese purple code. I mean, he helped win the Second World War. And there was nothing that he didn't think was possible for the human mind to achieve, including a definitive text of Shakespeare. In fact, at that time he thought that we could do sufficient research that we could create yes an absolutely definitive text of shakespeare that would never have to be edited again it's it's a remarkable uh, dream i suppose and in a way nightmare when you when you think about it and it seems entirely alien to our historical moment and so I, I love to talk about Bowers and the definitive edition to my students, uh, and they they too are, are astonished at, uh, the, at such a vision.
3: I would say that there are moments in which I do really, really wish I could pick up a phone and call Will Shakespeare and say, sighs, <laughs> kisses, which one? <laughs> or did one come from the theater? But the fact is, I think that's never going to happen. And I'll tell you something about Fredson Bowers. I I love Paul's description because, of course, the point is that if you've been involved in breaking the Japanese code, you're not only a great intellect, but you are sure that you are the intellect. But I've done a great deal of work on other of Shakespeare's contemporaries, particularly Beaumont and Fletcher. Bowers was in charge of an edition of Beaumont and Fletcher. Fletcher was a very—he was the— playwright of the King's Men following Shakespeare, is a very, and there's a very large canon of Beaumont and Fletcher. Bowers insisted that the Beaumont and Fletcher edition be done in old spelling. We take it for granted that we modernize Shakespeare in terms of spelling. We don't change doth to does, but we do spell old, O-L-D. And we've already <laughs> talked about some of the modernization of names. Bowers was persuaded that that was wrong. One of the results is that his edition of Beaumont and Fletcher seems terribly remote. The plays, if you pick them up, give them to a student, seem so much more remote than Shakespeare's plays. And that's because we have been reading modernized texts of Shakespeare for hundreds of years. So, no, I don't think there'll ever be a definitive text of Shakespeare, and I, I don't think we can have that, but I'm a great deal more comfortable with the somewhat less self assured unbowers like position of editors like Paul than I used to be with that kind of position.
2: Well,
1: Paul, Suzanne, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me.
2: Well, thank you. You're thank you. very welcome. It and was thank fun. Thank you, Suzanne. It's been wonderful to talk with you.
3: Yes, it's very, very nice. Thanks a lot.
2: Paul Warstein
0: is co-editor along with Barbara Mowat of the Folger Editions of Shakespeare and a professor of English at King's University College in London, Ontario. Suzanne Gossett is co-textual editor of the Norton Shakespeare Third Edition and professor emerita of English at Loyola University in Chicago. The dedicated words which writers use was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from Aileen Humphreys at WAMU in Washington, D.C., and Mary Gaffney at WBEZ Chicago. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.